Hello, everybody. Welcome to yet another episode of Building Public Podcast. I'm your host, KP, and today I am super stoked to have Dave Gardart, DG, on the podcast, one of the OGs in the podcast space, one of the greatest storytellers that I know in the B2B space. And I mean, yeah, he's smiling, but I actually, I genuinely mean it. I looked up to him and David canceled the combo, the duo that kind of set the podcast in the company building on fire in a way back 2016-17. And so it's an honor for me to invite him and talk about his book. Welcome, Dave. You stop that. That's a, it's amazing. No, I, I think one of the really cool things about like what we did in the early days of Drift was just like to connect with people, you know, like like you, for example. And I think it's a it's a perfect example of when you can create a brand and create something that's bigger than just a SaaS company. Because like at the end of the day, like, did you really care about conversational marketing? Probably not. But you not you know, even you, your target audience. That's the funny thing. Yeah. I was just a guy who had I mean, I had my founder dreams and I had this community dreams that I had. But like, frankly, if not for Drift, I thought I said all the time to a lot of people who want to be storytellers who want to talk about niches like guys it has to be bigger than your company totally yeah. it has to be bigger yeah it, it, it totally has to be bigger and it has to be because because people need to have some like selfish reason to like why do i follow what you're doing and like you know i never really wanted to be a startup founder but like i was really into like early stage startups and SaaS and stuff and so like i used to love like a company like like buffer for example remember mm-hmm. back in the day buffer was like transparent like, and yeah they, yeah. they kind of disrupted like the the landscape because they were transparent and they shared all this stuff and there's lots of pros and cons to that approach but as me early like you know 27 year old dave like that was a brand that I talked about a lot, even though I wasn't a founder, even though I probably didn't even buy their product, I referenced them as a brand because I liked hearing their story and like hearing how they were building stuff. So, and I think that's what, you know, happened for a small pe- uh, amount of people with Drift, right? It's, it was really cool. It's it's definitely percolated and, and kind of created ripple effects all around beyond B2B SaaS for sure. I mean, let's Wait, talk about- Can I ask you a question? Yes. Have you kind of like blown up a little bit? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I think a lot of my experiments blew up, but I, I'm still the same. You know, I'm still the same kid trying to send the same message. One thing I was just, I was chatting with somebody earlier this morning and we talked about how like it's, they say it's always like the message that's important. I disagree. The message is eternal. It's the messenger and it's the credibility and the volume of work and the trust behind that messenger. And you can't fake it. You have to earn it. And that's one of the things I, you know, I loved about you guys, you and, and even to, to today with David Cancel, like he earned his stripes, you know, by being open, by being vulnerable. Yeah. And, and I think a lot of founders do that. But the sad part is they don't go back and like narrate their story while it's happening or ever. The worst part right. is ever. Like, some, like <laughs> there are some iconic companies built and we don't even know what the founders well, think. Well, like I think um, I agree with you, but I also, I think that, I don't think it's the only way. And obviously yeah. I wrote a book about it. I think it's an advantage and it can be used. You can do things in an authentic way without having to be like, what's, I need some crazy marketing ideas where it's like, wait a second. Well, if your story is you just worked in B2B marketing as a CMO for 10 years and now you're starting your own content business about B2B marketing, wouldn't it help bring people into that message by like kind of telling them about who you are and why you did it along the way. And so like, I found that it can be an advantage because oftentimes it's not like, oh, this is KP and he's starting this business because he just wants to get filthy rich. It's like, there's usually some story, some why, some interesting like catalyst or whatever. And so like, it's kind of already baked in. And so like, oh, wow, there's already something interesting. So let's, let's use that to our advantage and let's use that to build credibility and trust and use it as an advantage to build our audience. But I think you can still build a brand without it. Like, you know, look at, look at like Slack, for example, like I couldn't tell you one name of one executive or person at that company. And even in the early days, it, you know, people might've known Stuart Butterfield, but he wasn't like the face of the brand as was right. marketed to customers. And so I don't think it's the only way, but I think in a world where like, I'm not the smartest or most creative person in the world, I think that I've just found that it can be an advantage that that plays well with a lot of companies. I fully agree. I mean, it, it leads us to this, the first question I have about the book. First of all, I want to say congrats. I said this before the podcast started, we started recording this, but I know it's a massive undertaking to write a book. I wrote like a couple of ebooks and I broke my back and I'm like, this is huge. So congrats on the work. Thank you. That's really kind of you to, to, to say that. And I that's one of the reasons why I wanted to come and um, do your podcast because like I think there's just a certain of like, could the book suck? It could completely suck. But just like that you appreciate like what goes into creating that and like the 
you know, I, I that was also the reason I want to do it. It's like, I, I don't, I care about the message, but I also was kind of just like a personal challenge to do it and put a book out in the world. So like, it it's is. really, it's really kind of you to know. Of that. course. I, I mean, it's funny because I think my, my part is now turning into like a new tradition of like inviting some of the authors. Like I had Sahil Avinja, I had Andrew Gazdecki, and I had a bunch of these, you know, people who just launched their book. And so I'm like loving this new sort of sub niche. But one thing I, I took out from reading the book, I, by the way, it was such a breezy read. I loved it. Um, some people might say like it's uh it could have I don't know, like different people have different tastes. And I think at a certain level, a lot of your content is subjective anyway, not you, like yeah. anyone's content. So to me, it's it's like, look, you can call it, it what it is. It's not, yeah. it, it's not, I'm not, a, I'm not a writing a novel. Like it's, I wrote, yeah, it's exactly. It's, and it, it, I wrote, a, it, it's 180 pages written in the same way that I would talk like yes. on, so, on social media. And so I love that about, I, I was, I figured that like either people will critique me for that or they'll say, I bought this book to get a message. And for me, it's like, did you get the message? Like, you know, I'm not a poet. I'm not yeah. that great of a writer. I love that about it. Actually, I mean, to be honest, though, I mean, it was very refreshing. And in a way, like, again, I'm not like, you know, hyping you up. In a way, it was really super inspiring to know that, okay, you know, just like how back 2017, 18, you guys inspired me to start the podcast. You kind of, again, reinforce the message that if I have something powerful and profound that I want to say, and I believe it, I should write a book about it. And don't worry about the, like, the language and the vernacular and the, and the oh, it has to be like a New York Times critical, like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, just be me because that's what people want. People want, yeah. you know, resonance and relatability. So one thing, let's talk talk about the first thing. The thesis of the book, the theme of the book, all in all, like overall, you reinforce it over and over again, is that every founder has an interesting story if they choose to tell, open up and talk about it. Now, I, I'm curious, like why? Why do you believe I wouldn't say every founder. I would say my theory that my theory is oftentimes founders do have a story and you can use it to your advantage. They're a lot. They're definitely boring <laughs> It's definitely boring <laughs> founders out there and boring stories. This isn't some Shout like out. you know mirror. This isn't six minute abs, but yes. <laughs> well, if you put it that way, but no, I'm saying. I mean, I think I'm just. I'm still curious. Like, why do you think this book needed to exist? What was missing from your point of view in the marketing in the story? In, what was the void? This book well, like none of none of the ideas in the book are new, and like you know, I've clearly borrowed them from other people that books I've read and been influenced by, and you know, things you just suck up online. But I think what what nobody had talked about is pointing that focus, that thinking of marketing and social media and community building and audience building online, and pointing it specifically as founder brand. Like I had initially, so the initial idea of that for the book was going to be about like building an audience because I've seen multiple times the power of building an audience in your personal career. Like I had a podcast called Tech in Boston that like jumpstarted my own career unintentionally where I interviewed founders in Boston. I built my old email list. I saw the impact that building an audience had at Drift and so I was like really going to write about that, the advantage that having an audience creates. But then it kind of got even more specific than that. And I was like, well, what did, you know, what do we do at Drift and what do we do at Privy? Well, we, we, at Drift, we told the story of David kind of specifically, and he was the CEO and the front man of that brand. And then similar thing at Ban, at, with Ben at Privy. And then I had kind of been sort of doing the same thing for my own stuff. And I just was like, you know, nobody's kind of talking about this as the founder brand. And I think that we get in these cycles of just like, we're so interested in the tools and so interested in the tactics and the growth hacks and like the should I be on web three like and it's just like you gotta sometimes the marketing strategies that work the best are the are the back back to the basics stuff and it's like let's get back to telling the founder story but today you have this cheat code even if you're selling enterprise software, which is like you can build an audience of your dream customers online without having to spend a dollar. And so I wanted to focus it on as a tool specifically to help startup founders build their brands and achieve their goals. I'd say it's probably not the most applicable book to founder of a, you know, for, to the $500 million company. But if you're either a startup founder, like just getting going, or maybe you're like, you know, crossing the 1 million ARR mark, I think that's the target for this. And it's based on a lot of stuff that we did. It's not ground breaking stuff but like we we did this at a couple companies and it, and it worked and it's kind of my point of view on a marketing strategy that I don't see enough marketing teams focus on because they focus so much on marketing the product when the you can create an advantage by actually telling the story of the founder and building your own audience and trying to go direct to consumers through marketing not just in like an e-commerce context one thing that you opened the book with is this concept of you know brand being i mean combination of attention, trust, and credibility. And I think let's go back to the example of, you know, the the stuff you did at Drift, especially around the podcast. I know there's multiple experiments, but let's talk about that. What did you feel was like in a slippery slope or what was like the, the tension you had when you think about attention versus trust? Because I feel like that's been one of the things emerging in the last three, four years where I'm noticing a lot of people are 
slipping into this trust, you know, I mean, sorry, slipping into the attention hole and they're just like trying to say something provocative or do something outrageous just to grab attention and eyeballs. But I don't know if necessarily they're thinking through if they're building enough trust. Yeah, I guess I think of attention differently. I don't think of attention in the way that you framed it as it's like, a, it's not a, hey, look at me. It's not a stunt. I don't think attention as a stunt. I mean, like, do I, like, am I in places where I could actually be aware of your message? Like, am I on your email list? Am I following you on social media? If you put messages out, will I be able to pay attention to them? I don't think it means provocative. I think that, yes, we live in the world of social media and I have a love-hate relationship with Twitter for many different reasons. But I think we live in the world of like, yeah, people want, people try to take swings and have like the most binary take and go in such an opposite direction or make a huge claim. That's one way to get attention for sure on the short term. But ultimately the measure is, I also think they're not all, they're kind of like phases, like, awareness, attention, and trust. And so I think trust is like how you pay off on that. And so like you can get my attention, but if I think that you're a scam or I think that you're a jerk or or, or whatever, or like you, you know, you don't live up to this claim that you make, then I don't ultimately check box number three, I guess, which is, which is the trust bucket. And so I think, I think they have to be, they're like different steps in a funnel almost. I fully agree. So the, I wanted to ask you the other question around your favorite marketing experiments that you had, let's say at Drift and then eventually at Privy. Sure. Um, or the ones uh, that you most, the, the ones you learned the most from. Okay, well, if, if anybody who's ever worked with me knows I'm not the growth experimenter <laughs> type, I am the go to Google and Google statistical significance calculator. Like, and so I'm much more impulsive and that's my gift and my, in the curse. And I know this will contradict a lot of marketing advice today, but you know, a lot of what a lot of the, the decisions that I've made in marketing have not been based on some perfectly quantifiable growth spreadsheet that says like, we want to improve this thing 2%. And I don't know, maybe maybe that's why things have worked out. Like I've gotten just lucky, but or maybe, but like, I think I don't have like the super methodical approach to marketing. For me, it's much more about like audience building and community building because in each different scenario. And so I, I've come up from like, there's kind of always, always been like these feedback channels that like I could get feedback on before we we went and did something more broadly. And so like instead of specific experiments, I'm more proud of and I love this playbook of like, for example, at Drift, one of the early one of the one of the ways that we like built an early audience was by creating this podcast, Seeking Wisdom, right? And that's how we got connected with you. And Seeking Wisdom had nothing to do with what Drift was trying to sell, conversational marketing, SaaS software. But it was a podcast about that we were, David and I were sharing like, you know, here's this like seasoned CEO, David, he has a bunch of success under his belt. Here's this like, you know, young guy who doesn't know what the hell he's doing and me and marketing. And we're kind of talking about what we're doing, building the company. We're not really selling you on things. We're talking about learnings and books and, you know, routines and habits and and kind of just like mental model type stuff. And the content of that podcast it just like after a year, we had done a hundred episodes. The feedback that we got, it was like unlike any other channel. It wasn't obvious in spreadsheets, but like people were emailing us. They were talking to our investors, advisors, like the word of mouth factor on Seeking Wisdom was so tangible that nobody ever worried how we're going to justify it. But instead of an experiment to give you, here, here's another example. Like we took... We, David said, okay, we want to do an event. We feel like the response to our, after doing six months of this podcast, like, man, there's something crazy here. This is not just like a marketing on It's like, I bet we could do an event. And so I was like, David was like, well, we got to do an event. I'm like, great. How about 200 people? And he's like, why 200? And I was like, well, I looked up how much this other company got in their first year. And like, they're comparable to us. Let's do 200. He's like, no, F that. He's like a thousand. And I was like, are you kidding me? But he was right because we had already built this audience. We had this podcast. We had this, this feedback and connection. And it actually, the event connection works so well because how do we know what to talk about at this event? How do we know what content to put? How do we know what the event should be called? What the theme should be? Who should speak? We kind of had already felt our way through that, through the podcast. Okay, now we go and do this event. Wow, this event was really interesting. This one wasn't great. This one wasn't. The number one session that people went out after the speaker was this. Okay, let's do more things with this person. And so like, it's not so much that I'm like this methodical experimenter, but I think when you understand how to use the channels that we have today, like through social media and podcasting and content, you can use those not just as like hardcore ROI conversion rate pieces, but as as feedback channels. And like even the power of like David Cancel having a bunch of Twitter followers. One time he tweeted, 
tweeted something about like how he never hired a product managers with master's degrees, which is like insane. People were so mad and he got all these comments and I was like, we need to turn that into a podcast episode. And then we turn that into a podcast episode and that podcast episode does better than any other podcast episode. Then we turn that into an article. And so I think that's the most powerful ingredient that that we have. And um, that's what I like to take to companies, at least that I worked at. And this is all like revisionist history. I didn't like, you know, I was like, I'm taking this playbook. Right. Like, <laughs> of course. What I've done and I've learned along the way, but that's the world where I come from, which is like much different than someone like Guillaume Caban, who was who VP of growth at Drift. And he was at Segment and a bunch of the other companies. He's more of a like crazy growth experiment type of stuff. I'm, my stuff is much more rooted in that. But the learnings that you can drive from that, from a community and content standpoint is like an absolute you know, cheat code for delivering content to, to people that they actually care about. Now take that and, and kind of run with it in terms of like some other playbooks or experiments you tried at Privy. Well, so the Privy was a little bit different because there, they actually, like when we first were going, getting going at Drift, the company was being created and, and, and it was like zero. And like, there was a couple product directions and ideas, but it wasn't really committed. Privy, and, and we didn't have any audience. It was like, how do we get people on our email list? And Privy was more of like, the company had been around for a while. They had already been at about 10 million in revenue. They had a couple hundred thousand stores using their product. They were like one of the top rated apps in the Shopify app store. And so there it was like, okay, how can we like take all of those ingredients and turn them into something that's already there as opposed to coming up with it out of thin air. And so there was like an exercise in, in storytelling, which is Ben, who's the founder, he was like, I think we have this opportunity to kind of own, nobody really owns like the small business corner of the market. E-commerce is huge right now. It's booming. Right. There's a billion Shopify stores. There's all these other SaaS companies, but nobody owns small business e-commerce marketing. And I, I'm telling this story because I think what's so important is this concept that like your story is your strategy. And so Ben at the highest level said, as a company, we want to be the leader for small businesses in e-commerce marketing. That was like the strategy for the company. And so from there, now I can go build a marketing strategy. Sales team can go build a sales strategy that, you know, all those things are based off of that pillar. Okay. So if you want to be the leader in small businesses. Well, what do you need to do? Well, small businesses are a little bit different, right? The person who, who you're trying to reach is not an expert marketer. They're the founder. They're doing 15 other things and they're on right. these channels. And so what was amazing was like going there and creating this story that Ben had in his head about like owning small business, but then playing it out across using all of our own channels. Like we didn't have to hire a PR agency. We didn't have to hire you know people to try to pitch us and bring attention. We created our own assets, our own channels to basically shape that message. And so like a lot of companies will change their messaging, but they just go change on the website. Well, in that same year, Privy not only just changed the website to be all about leaders in small business uh, marketing for e-commerce, right? So whatever we call it. And, but we created masterclasses for small brands. We created a podcast for small brands. Ben sent me a text the other day. It's been downloaded 500,000 times now. And um, we learned that it's first start off as like hour long interviews with me and like kind of like sexy name, like e-commerce founders. But that's not what people wanted. The people wanted five to 10, like really tactical episodes. Like here's three emails you need to be sending. And so Ben started the podcast. Like Ben was like, I'll do the podcast. And he, he was the one talking to customers every day. And so he would just batch record these short episodes and sure enough, we started putting out a daily five to 10 minute podcast about e-commerce marketing tips focused on small businesses. We wrote a book on the topic. We were going to do a huge in-person event on the topic right before COVID. But basically, we shifted the whole kind of brand marketing and content strategy to be how do we reposition Privy as the leader for small brands? And then that kind of like plays out in our marketing. It doesn't just, it's not just like a website message that gets changed. We became our own publishing company. It was our own email list, our own events, our own podcast, our own book. We didn't have to wait for others to write about us. We became that kind of mini media, media company, that mini publishing company that's attached to the business to help grow awareness and ultimately drive revenue. You've done this like a couple of times now. And I, I know you, whether intentionally or unintentionally, you, you end up building a media empire in a way for your niche. And you've done that you know, a couple of times. So, and I know outside in, it feels like it. Like, for example, drift conversational marketing was not a thing. Like, I don't even know what the heck that meant. Right. But you guys built sort of a, when I say media empire, I mean like newsletter, sure. podcast, Telegram channels. Yeah, whatever. And all, blah, blah, blah. And the speakers on the topic and over and over and like content guides, ebooks, and almost made it like such an aspirational learning topic that even folks who were not in that niche were like, huh. This is fascinating. This is interesting, right? Like leaning into it. And like, I wonder how much of that was intentional, like leading, like creating and owning a category. Cause you know, that's something, you know, like, you know, a lot of people talk about yeah. was this like, it just serendipitous, but also no, it was intentional because I think we believed that the best, I still believe this. I think that the best marketing is like 
education and expertise. Mm. And especially in the niche that, that I've been in, which is B2B, you can do all the channels, all the tactics, but like nothing works better than being the trusted resource on X topic. Right. And I mean, this has been true for a while, right? Like I think look back to like Gainsight created basically customer success and they had the blog and had the website and had the event that had their dream customers separate from their software saying like, yep, this is the blog that I read. This is who I follow. And I think that also matches like our own our own lives and our own personal behaviors. Like if you listen to a comedy podcast and your favorite comedian, all of a sudden she starts selling like clothing or, or tickets to something like you're going to buy those things because right. you've kind of already seen, you've gotten some value, you've gotten some, the body of work. And I think it works really well in B2B when you can kind of like, you know, most of the B2B functions are like marketing, sales, HR, finance, payroll, IT, security. There's someone who has a job and needs to get smarter and better or more educated about that job. And the way to eventually get them into your product is by being like, look, we we clearly already have something in common. You're not just talking to you know anybody. I'm like, you're in customer success. We make customer success software. If I want to ultimately tell you about my customer success software, first I have to get you reading my stuff and on my email list and and blah, blah, blah. And I think, I just think that's, that's the, that to me is like the, my favorite playbook, because then you're turning on who are the internal experts? Who are the, you know, why did we start this company? What interesting things are we doing? What takes do we have? What things are we challenging? And so I think the, the, the playbook is like focusing on education and, and expertise. I love that. I mean, and a little bit of BTS too, behind the scenes. I think another thing that shines across you know, your content is, I love the inclusion of kids. I love the inclusion of like, you just like, you know, it's, it's the real you, you know, I know a part of it is on Instagram, but even on Twitter, even on LinkedIn, it's uh, I think it's got its own magnetic effect of being readable and real. And something that I love a lot is knowing a person 360. Like, you know, what is it like yeah. to be? Yeah. I think I've kind of like changed my tune on that a little bit. Like I, I see, yeah. What was well, the tune before and what's not now? Not changed my tune, but just like I'm less willing to open up publicly more and share my kids and share that type of stuff than probably four or five years ago. However, there's still an important ingredient there, which is like to be authentic and to be personal. And so like, I think if you know, you know, when you go to somebody's like social media page, if it's just kind of like all like pre-scheduled, you know, auto tweets. And so I think the way that I try to do that now is just like injecting my actual personality into, into my writing and into my, you know, I don't like, you can't reply to everybody on social media, but like every now and then to like, to make the same joke that I would make to my friend or whoever. And I think there's different ways to insert that other than like having to be like, here I am being a, being an awesome dad. Like I think that works and that that's can definitely be important to people. But for me, I've just like, I've wanted to kind of peel some of that back and just separate, like I'm not doing my life in public. I'm talking about marketing in public. And when I'm talking about marketing, I can be, you know, I can inject my personality into that stuff. But I, I don't think it has to mean you're documenting your life 24 seven. You, you don't right. have to do that. That works and, really well for people. Right. But you don't, you definitely don't have to do that. And it's, it's a spectrum too. I mean, that's something that I get getting all the time as a question, like, you know, KP, like you talk about building in public all the time, but you know, like I have financial <laughs> regulations, I can't document. All right. Then don't, the answer is just don't like nobody's yeah putting a gun to your head and asking, give out every transparent like bank transactions. Like that's not the point. The point is, can you come up with an interesting story about what you do that can be readable? And as you reflect on it, there are so many aspects of your day to day that you may think are dumb and obvious. Like, for example, like if you pick up an advertising book, that's something I loved about, I don't know, early on, I, I saw a bunch of advertising books mentioned by you. I don't know if you still do that early on. I used to love advertising in college and I really liked, like there were some books that I loved that you mentioned. I'm like, oh, wow, that's cool. I, I gave no shits about B2B marketing, by the way. I was like, wow, that's so cool. Like, you know, and yeah. one of my big mentors was chief creative officer, Sachi and Sachi. So he and I really bonded many years ago on that topic. And I noticed like you and Dave talking about, uh, DC talking about that. And I was like, huh. So not traditional B2B marketing, something a little different. You know, I think that's something that I yeah. think about is, infuse a little bit more than what people can, you know, people would expect. I think, you know, every people like to talk about this line a lot. So like, this isn't a revelation, but it's still people and it's still people interacting online. And I think what happens is a lot of people, at least what we saw like in the B2B marketing or B2B SaaS space would be like, I'm a B2B SaaS company. And so I must interact on these channels like a B2B SaaS company where like, no, no, you're going to the people's medium. <laughs> right. And so you have to, so, so like if you want your message to actually be seen and resonate with people, you 
you have to press pause on the fact that you're a B2B SaaS company and first be like, okay, well, how do I say things in this world? And how do I need to communicate in this world? And I, so I think what, what David really understood and like kind of passed on to me is he was never thinking about B2B SaaS. He was like, this is how I'm looking. He's like, you know, he's looking at what's happening on Instagram and, and TikTok and, you know, different messaging apps and channels. And he's like, look at what's happening on, you know, look at this YouTube channel. Look at how they're blowing up. He's not like thinking about like, you know, what's, what is outreaches, you right. know, be, you know, YouTube content strategy. He's like, no, look at, I'm, I'm into yoga. Why does this guy have a million views on his video? Obviously we're not selling, you know, yoga. It's much different, but like, what are the principles in that? And then how can you take those things and then apply them to the, to the niche that you're in? I think I was talking about this with somebody, uh, oh, uh, Kevin Dorsey, this guy, KD, you're KP, he's KD. And he was, we were talking about Dan Kennedy, who's a great, you know, old school, like, direct marketing copywriter. But he basically says like the number, he ha- has this line, it's like the number one rule to know before writing was like, do they have their own language? Do that does who you're trying to write to have their own language or way of, you know, talking about things. And I think what we miss as marketers in the B2B context is like, yeah, the Twitter is different than LinkedIn is different right. than YouTube is different. Than of the room. Right. And so you can't just like take your, you know, very average content on its own and then just slap it on those channels. And I'm saying this because I I've done this. I've been like make content for a B2B SaaS company put it on Instagram, put it on YouTube, put it on LinkedIn, send out an email about it and like nothing really is happening when in every example, the way to actually grow something is to kind of focus on like one or two core channels and really understand that channel and grow that channel and then use those learnings to then go to channel number two and channel number three. It's the same philosophy behind niche, niches too, right? Picking a niche is, you know, you, you can't ever be everything for everybody. You may become a breakout star about a niche and the world will talk about you from that lens. And then, yeah, you can expand to other things. Yeah. But, can you I know, give like you a niche? real example yeah. of that? I'll give yeah, you I love real, that. I was going to ask you. I'll give you a real example of it. Like personally for me, I go through this internal struggle of like, ah, I don't want, ju- I don't just want to talk about B2B marketing. However, I'm really interested in building my own business and seeing what I can do building my own business. And so I have goals and I said, I'm building a business. And if I'm building a business, the best thing for me to do is to focus on B2B marketing and and own and try to like own the niche of B2B marketing versus like, hey, follow this, you know, follow this guy, Dave, go to his website. Sometimes he writes about e-commerce stuff. Sometimes he writes about B2B. Sometimes he posts pictures of his kids. You're going to love it. That's fun. That would definitely be fun. And I want to do that. And I'm like, oh, I wish I could talk more about consumer stuff. But from a attracting an audience standpoint, it is it is way the truth that the riches are in the niches is like the, yep. is like the truth, right? And so focus on, in my case, it's like, no, dude, focus on B2B marketing. Don't take on these other things. This is where, then there's already, there's already something there. There's already a there there. There's, you know, a couple thousand members. You have this other thing, like the signals are there, own the niche. And like even early days of Drift, we knew that we wanted to sell to all of the, all of B2B SaaS. It wasn't just going to be a marketing You're right about this. Actually, I want to hear about this. Like I was, it was, it was mind blowing to me because it didn't feel apparent as an outside in, but the way you describe in the book where you niche down to one category, I want you to go finish that. So I remember very specifically, David Cancel was like obsessed with uh, Warren Buffett and Charlie uh, Charlie Munger. Charlie right. Munger always has this quote about invert, always invert. And so like when you're trying to tackle a problem, like you kind of just flip it and, and, and look at it the opposite way. And I remember one time we were, he was like, we need to just pick one persona. We need to pick one niche because right now we're trying to market to everybody and it's like not really landing. We need to stick with one, we need to land on one persona. And his hypothesis was like, it should be product marketing because we need to, in order for Drift to work, Drift can't work if it's not installed on somebody's website. If there's no code installed on somebody's website. Okay, well, who owns the website at most of these companies? There's demand gen, there's product marketing. We kind of knew a lot of product marketers in like local Boston startup community. We're like, oh, I bet, you know, we know a bunch of product marketers. Product marketers can get it on the website. And so we're like, let's focus this down on like telling this story. Let's build an audience of product marketing people because if we can build an audience of product marketing people, they can actually get drift on the website. And if we can do that, then we can take those learnings and apply that to demand gen, to sales, to BDRs, to whatever. And that was just like, I think one of the biggest learnings of my career was just like that type of thinking. And I think I see it a lot. I work with a bunch of different startup founders today and everybody in that moment wants to, but we, no, we can't talk about that because we leave out this audience. And Tam, they're all worried about the Tam, right? They're all like, oh yeah, our time is so big. And I love that you actually say, what's you you talk about it saying, what is the minimal, like the least amount? What, what do you call that? Is there something there's a phrase where you say the the minimum 
Tam that you can get by when you think about, you know, the niche. And, I don't know. Maybe it was minimum viable audience, but that sounds yeah. too smart. Um, yeah. <laughs> but but also like, you know, it's it's not always, it's not even just a Tam thing, Lo, because you don't have to do this forever. I think like you need to use this as a way to build learning and build success. And then like, it's your wedge to get going, get some momentum going. Like you're trying to go to five different personas. You got nothing going. Let's, we can, we can grow the Tam bigger, but like, let's nail one use case, perfect that, take the learnings, Boom. And this can all happen over the course of weeks and months. It's not like years of just focusing on this one persona. But you know what I'm going to steal from that though, from that page or from that chapter, I just loved where you said it's today. The focus is on today. It's what, who is the ideal customer, your current product in the current ver- version, current iteration can satisfy, can solve for today. If yes. you can lock that in, that could be your niche. And then you can expand later. Oh my God, such a great solve. Because this is a common question that I get to. People are like, and they're trying to build it for everybody. And, and yeah. it could be content too, like everybody. No, you can't, you know? Well, and it's, it's often- uh, You're not the- Kanye. Yeah. <laughs> And Kanye didn't, really, Kanye didn't build for everybody. Right. Not at first he didn't. Yep. But I think, you know, the other thing is the today piece is important because it's oftentimes it's the company or person or whatever with, with no traction that's saying, but we're trying to go to these five different personas. Like if, if you've gotten traction and that's working, then you're marketing to five personas, whatever. God bless you. Keep, keep going. I, you know, you've already got it figured out, but it's usually like, how do we get this thing moving? Like we don't have, we need to, you know, we don't have any inbound interest right now. Okay. Well then like, that's where we're going to say like, let's focus on this persona or let's focus on this niche and, and build from there. And who knows, you might even learn like, this is the niche. There is, you know, this is the whole business. It doesn't need to be, we don't need to expand or there's so much more we can go, in, you know, vertically in this. So you've built audiences on both Twitter and LinkedIn. And yep. I wanted to ask you, like, how is the experience different for you for, for as a creator? How is it different? There was both these two rooms. I have to imagine because I have zero presence on uh, LinkedIn. I have a decent presence on Twitter and it scares me going into LinkedIn because it feels like it, there's a lot of flexing, humble bragging going on. And I don't know how I can discern between what's what, but I know I have to be there, be present. And this is the concern that a lot of people who yeah. are on Twitter half and they also the easy thing is they shit on linkedin saying like yeah it's you know it's just this but ideally you would of course want to you know be present both ways both part both uh, platforms what, what were your lessons from building an audience in both look on the like the linkedin dunking thing like i think twitter people like to do that but like of course there's going to be that most of the people like mo- linkedin is kind of like a b2b specific platform and, mm. and it's people that are tied to some work identity on LinkedIn. Like on Twitter, even if you are marketing manager at company X, you're more often KP who likes Nikes and is marketing manager at X. Whereas like on LinkedIn, you're like, this is KP, head of demand gen at Oracle. And and so like that you kind of go to that platform with that persona and it's a business platform. And so yes, most it does feel like, you know, posting all these wins or whatever. It's because that's what people often talk about when it comes to business. I also have don't have a lot of patience for the complaining because I think that the the opportunity on LinkedIn, you can it's an incredible place to build an audience if you can do it. And there's no rule that says like the only way to build an audience is to do it that way. And so if you mm-hmm. think that everybody's doing it that way, you Change can do it. it do you could do it completely differently. And so I don't know, I think I just like defend LinkedIn because I've seen the crazy LinkedIn has fueled, I would say almost 100% of like the growth of DGMG. And there's 5000 roughly paying members. And that's fueled through obviously, it's grown from other sources now. But like when I first launched it, what I, I first launched on Patreon, I got 200 paying members in one day solely from what I posted on LinkedIn because that was the only place that I built my audience. And so what I've seen is it's especially in B2B, it can be it's a really powerful platform to talk about a specific thing. And now people don't like people who talk about just one thing. And so yeah, mm-hmm. of course, like I you know, I I expect you to be tired of me talking about marketing or tired of so and so talking about sales or copywriting, but that is what that platform is. You can definitely change up the the content mix, but I think if you're in B2B, it's the number one content platform to be on. It's more important to me, I think, than having a blog, than even having your own website, because I think the reach that you can build and get from LinkedIn will allow you to do all those things later. Twitter is much was much weirder. Like I, I've been on Twitter since like 2009 and taken a really long time to like grow followers. And I'm not into like the growth Twitter game of like threads and all that stuff. I, I think they're great. I'm not dunking on threads. Like I know people do that. I just mean like I'm not actively trying 
I'm like not trying hard to grow a Twitter following. Right. And so it's, it basically took like a decade to get to 30,000 followers on Twitter. But I saw like a period of two years where I added like 100,000 followers on LinkedIn. And I think wow. that wasn't so much of like, it wasn't that I said some like groundbreaking things. It was more just like the, I think content match, uh, content audience fit is really important. Like I'll give you an example. I'm doing this live event with the DGMG community and it's about SEO and how to measure SEO and what to, what you need to know about SEO and biggest mistakes and miss and it it has almost a thousand people signed up and it's like, which is like 900 more than any other event that I've ever done. And it's not because we came up with some genius hook or title or promotion strategy. It's just so clear. Like this is like the, so it's such an obvious thing. It's just like the audience of who the audience is, which is mostly B2B marketing, B2B SaaS people. So clear that that SEO is a sore spot, is a hot topic. And Stop that's why they're coming. For them. Yep. And so, and so I think that part is just like very underrated in content. And I think the LinkedIn is like the per, B2B SaaS specifically is like the perfect niche to build an audience with LinkedIn. That said, that I also think it can be used for anything. If I was an e-commerce founder, if I was, because I would say every investor, every advisor, every partner, every employee is going to be on LinkedIn. And so I think if you're tied to something at work at a company, huge value in being on LinkedIn and you don't have to tweet about B2B, you don't have to write about B2B marketing. You can be, you know, you're, you could share your e-commerce journey, your whatever. The reach that you can get from the platform today is, is still huge. And it's just, it's just much different than Twitter, but I do kind of take six signals from each to sometimes create content. Would you say like, if you have to pick out like one or two specific tips from your journey on LinkedIn, what would those be from kind of creators? Niche, our favorite word of the day, which is niche. And so for me, when I was talking about what I was eating and my workouts and my kids and this marketing lesson and this book and this random idea, my following was growing, but it wasn't like, you know, it was not on this pace. When I just kind of lasered in on just kind of only talking about marketing and B2B marketing, I'd say that's when, and doing that really consistently, I think that's when things really start to happen. And so again, the more you can focus on a niche. A friend of mine sent me his like new website last night. He said, what do you think of this? He's like, I'm starting a blog and I want to talk about building businesses and being and, and entrepreneurship and fitness and wealth. And I'm like, you sound like every other person who wants to build an audience on Twitter. Like, what is your hook? What is your story? And so like, he's trying to work on some type of like a name for that. And I think that's just, it's, it's so powerful. Powerful. And so like, for me, not, it was not like be demystifying Wikipedia articles. I'm just kidding. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Listen, like, I feel like we should be get some kind of money back or credits, you know, for reading shit like that. It's just wild to me. Sometimes you're like, come on, the lowest hanging fruit. I see it, it's like the listicles on, I don't know, 10 years ago, like every blog had a listicle, like BuzzFeed yeah. blew that up. Yeah. Uh, we know it works, but it's just uh, not intellectual or I don't know. I just feel like it's just dry to me. But yeah. I know it works. So I respect the hustle. So you got to focus on a niche and you have to commit to publishing consistently mm. because I think the number one lesson is that you should be using social media to at least for the first year or so to find your voice. It's not about growing a following. It's about like actually figuring out how to condense, how to like turn your brain to thinking about this a lot and then condensing those into like short, witty, quotable or rants. That's a habit that you have to build up over time. Very few people can just start kind of posting whatever they want and it's just going to land with people. And so I think it's it's just as much of a writing and finding your voice exercise in the first six to 12 months as it is of like, you know, I'm going to build an audience. So, so it's funny you mentioned voice because my next question for you on the lineup was around podcasting and literally about voice. So what were like, as you reflect about all the podcast episodes you created, what were some key lessons that, you know, you wish you knew, like when you first started, like, what would be your top three tips or Bobby's advice that you would give to 27 year old Dave about podcasting specifically? I don't know. A lot has changed, like in the time frame. I think like, just like in general, one of the things that I didn't expect with the benefits of podcasts, I think one of the huge ROI on having a podcast is learning. Mm. And I feel like I've learned so much about B2B marketing because I've spent hours and hours and hours getting to like interview CMOs who are way better than me and ask them questions and figure out how they think about things. And so I think that podcasting can be an amazing like cheat code for learning. Now you can't dress it up and disguise it as like free consulting. But I think if you can, you know, it always works better when you're genuinely interested in the topic as the host. And that kind of leads to another point, which is like, I even just like the way you talk on this podcast is really, really good. Where like a lot of podcast hosts, they're like, all right, Dave, <laughs> 
next next question and like i'm like hold on did you listen to did you hear anything that i just said because like i actually like we should have a conversation like and i think a lot of times it's not i left a clue for you to expand on something yeah 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 like what you know it's it and look it is hard over zoom to like not cut somebody off and to try to play that game but i think like you you know to do it to be genuinely curious and to actually see like yeah look i got my prep notes but like i don't know what this could go in any direction today and i want to i want to have the freedom to do that i also i didn't come prepared for your linkedin rant man (laughs) you just went off on a rant and i'm gonna clip that out i'm gonna put that on twitter because it's it's really a thing that a lot of us were super active on twitter it's so easy to joke and like you know razz on linkedin but you're pointing to the surface area that we're missing out on and i think something it's definitely weighing on a lot of the twitter creators head and minds it's just they haven't articulated it and yeah. i think that could resonate well we'll see but um no or it just makes for good content to be on twitter complaining about linkedin makes exactly. for good twitter content. exactly oh that too no, i want to ask another thing about podcasting before we wrap that up on that topic where did you ever feel like you were not asking enough smart questions to the other guests like especially when you interviewed some really famous or cmos yeah. or all the well, how how did you like grow your iq like what i'm worried about sometimes it's like when i, I interview gary we interviewed like you know alexis and sometimes you think that i'm like i can't believe i'm interviewing some of these people who had yeah. hundreds thousands of interviews like cnbc all these like great hosts and i'm just a guy asking like the dumbest questions in my view so i'm like how can i be smarter well i but think i also I think know, you gotta I mean, figure out what you want to what you really want to ask i think like for me it's not about like the smart question it's yes. like why if you had an hour with alexis yes. ohanian what do you want to get out of that? It's because a very it's selfish thing. I, well, I truly agree. Well, sure. But I think what happens is like, it's very easy to be like, so you first invested in this company and like, oh, you dropped out of college. Like skip all that. Like, what do I really want to talk about? Like yeah. if you have Gary V for an hour right now, what do you want to talk yeah. about and get out of that? And so I think what anytime you go back to like the, where'd you grow up, histories type stuff, that can be good on some podcasts. But I think for the most part, like if you, you know, if you the best questions, and I think um Tim Ferriss actually does this really it's it's very different but he does this really interesting thing where he finds like he starts off his interview with some like super 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 deep random question that like only he knew i think like howard stern used to do this or yeah. something like this even um, the guy on the um what's who's the guy with the spike i mean the hot sauces guy I, can't, I forgot his name but he does the same thing he finds right. out like he does the most research and finds out about like the 2001 right. version of whatever you did and so, so, yeah. so and so i think that that's a the reason that works really well is because it instantly gets somebody comfortable and like talking and i think even I've heard people talk about like, you know, they start off like, like you and I, we had some background. And so we had some kind of like natural small talk, not like forced, like, how is it in Vermont today? You know, (laughs) but I think like anytime you can get somebody going, like I've seen people like, you know, Hey, what did you eat for breakfast today? Or, you know, what's the last book you read? Cause I think a lot of times people just are kind of like in interview mode and they're just like waiting for you to be like, okay, did the interview start now? Okay. First question versus like, you should, you know, you really want to get people talking. And sometimes I wish that I could not even do like, like when I have people on my podcast, I wish that I, I could just record like the second somebody comes in because something happens when like you do the natural talk yeah. and then you're like, all right, all right, cool. So yeah, so we're going to go for about 40 minutes and I'm going to hit record right now. And then you hit record and like, this like person just like transforms completely yeah. into interview yeah. mode. I'm like, right. I want to interview, I want to have a conversation with you. And so I think yeah. the more, also the other thing that I do, and, and this might be annoying to the other person on the end of Zoom, and Zoom is a weird interface, obviously it's challenging, but like I do this because I think there's things that I know that my audience or whoever's listening wants me to hear or, or like, oh, he glossed over that really thing. I'm, I know this is going to be annoying, but I'm going to interrupt him. And I'm going to say, hold on, KB, KB, K- K- hold, hold on. You mentioned that you had this doc that listed out X, Y, and Z. Can we actually go back to that for a second? Because mm-hmm. I think like the more you don't, like I listen to interviews sometimes I'm like, ah, I wanted to know that more. Like I wish, like, don't let that gloss over just because it's like a conversation. Don't just go to next question. Like if you said, if something interesting, cop, like ask somebody to come back to that and right. you don't have to do it in an annoying way. Be like, well, how much was your salary at that job? Like, right. but like, if there's things that you are genuinely curious to know, don't let them go by. Be like, hold on, I'm going to ask this and I'm going to go back to that. And I found that that's where a lot of like the really good nuggets were like, I remember interviewing some, it's like you're interviewing someone and they're like, yeah, my first boss, you know, told me blah, blah, blah. Okay, cool. And I'm going to be like, wait, your first boss told you what, you know, like, I want to hear that. I want to go into those things. I think you have to bring that, that level of it. And this is also just one style of podcasting. You know, you could make kind of more storytelling, like narrative type shows too. Right. Right. I mean, do you ever feel like you could just be podcasting for a long, long, long time? 
Like do you, yeah, every other month and then I get burnt out and I don't want to do I, it's, it anymore. It's really hard for me to believe that you would get burnt out with podcasts. Like, someone yeah, like it, you're a natural conversationalist. Yes, but I'm like, I'm also naturally introverted. And so like, there's some element of like getting up for this and like yeah. wanting to do it. And it's like, it's, and it's also, it's easier to go on somebody else's podcast sometimes. Yeah. Than I, like, I feel the same uh, way. Cause also really there's the post work, which yeah. I hate. Yeah, there's post work, but like, you know, you can use like Hatch, you can use yeah. my yeah, my yeah, homies yeah. at Hatch or whatever. But like, yeah, I, I think it's the, it's kind of like working out for me. Like whenever I'm doing it, I'm like really happy with it. And I'm like, wow, that was awesome. That conversation was so good. I'm like a crazy person. Like literally, I, I take notes. Like I I stop people and I'm scribbling down notes. Not I haven't done it on this, but like when I'm hosting, I scribble down full pages of notes and like And what happens stamps. to them? I actually, so I have one right now. I, I took a picture of it on my phone and then it's on a Trello card with that episode because it's on my backlog. I don't, I need to write this episode. I haven't like relaunched my podcast yet. So I have a bunch of backloads and so backlogs. And so I need to like batch in a week or so, go and write headlines and descriptions. And then I also pick out like which clip that I want to get. Mm. And I have a team that helps me do the podcast production and that stuff. But that's the stuff that I don't outsource, which is like, what's the title? What's yeah. the podcast description? Because like I scribble down things like, you know, all throughout the show. And so I just take a picture of it. And so then when I go to write the notes, I like remember the things that we, the, that yeah, we talked about. The, and that that's actually my favorite system right now. I used to try to like be way more complex than that and like try to write, you know, write in a Google Doc or do something. But I found like literally scribbling on this. Yeah, I do that a lot too. Yeah. Because <laughs> it's like, even though it's like barely legible, it's just something like it like is a mind trick that like will bring my back to like, oh yeah, I remember what he talked about in that section. And like, I'll and be able to. It's also fun. It's usually the dumb words it's never like a very glossy definition a description of what happened it's always like the thing that i didn't expect you to say is is where what i document and it's funny yeah, i'm trying to find <laughs> it's so funny how our minds work but yeah and it just like it also helps him because like to the point about like being curious and being an interviewer and stuff like i will also make notes like while you're talking so i try not to interrupt you and then i'll like make notes or mark down things or like oftentimes when I'm when you're talking about something, I might think of a thing that I want to ask you next, but I next. don't want to lose that train of thought. And so I'll yeah. be like, ask, you know, I'll make that note and then can go back to it, you know? Yeah. So, well, it just reminds me of one thing that I wanted to ask you a, a few minutes ago, having a CEO, I mean, this is something you cover in the book, but like having a CEO who gets it in terms of marketing and brand is a huge weight off your shoulders. And I mean, it has to be, but I'm curious, having a CEO who gets it too much, how does that feel? <laughs> I bet you nobody asked you that. Who gets it too much? Oh, man. <laughs> this is a direct attack on David Council. Just kidding. <laughs> I think it's a, look, it's a positive thing. It's like, do you want to play, you know, do you want to play with LeBron James or do you want to, you know, fit like put up 30 points a night on a different team? It was an amazing learning experience. I think, you know, one of the comfort is the enemy of growth. And so like yeah. when you have a, somebody who gets it on a better level than you do, you know, you're going to constantly be pushed to do more, to do the next, to do the next thing to, the, there were many times where I was just like, man, I wish I just had like an average CEO and worked at an average company and like this week I just want to come into work and like you know do two average things and go home and that's not a snipe at anybody that's literally like you know it just right. felt like the pressure to like do something great right. and like always challenge but like I mean how much I grew from learning that stuff is just like insane like I feel I hear myself like you know explaining things on calls with clients or, or doing or you know helping other teams or whatever and I now see that like what I've learned is like the fundamentals or not the fundamentals but like the principles and so like the tools and technology are going to change but I feel like like I have some of my own principles now that I've learned like through that process to be able to like make decisions. And now I feel like I could do anything. I could put on a 10,000 person event or launch a highly produced podcast or do billboards or create some new like revenue campaign because you know you, you're forced to learn and get outside of your comfort zone I think the pros outweigh the definitely outweigh the cons however I'm also like incredibly biased in all of the advice that I give because I can only talk about the experiences that I have and like I happen to have been you know as far as a marketing leader two for two with CEOs and companies and so like yeah I have total empathy for like people who are like I just get it's just like a catchy line that I get to say on Twitter like you know life is too short to work for a CEO who doesn't get marketing. But that's like not the reality for most people. Yeah. And there's plenty of CEOs who don't. And like, what are the chances that I just picked two in a row and now I'm done? <laughs> and, <laughs> and so it just happened to work out that way. But yeah. Do you think you are currently uh, employed by a CEO who gets it? Yeah, myself. <laughs> I'm, yeah, yeah, my CEO. How, how, how difficult or easy it is to play both roles now? Because now you're both the main 
sort of like the main person, but also you're the marketing <laughs> leader together in the same. Yeah. I mean, it's look, I'm very fortunate and like what I do is not a grind and it's not challenging. And so like, I don't have a huge operating plan, you know, like, <laughs> and so I'm, I'm very fortunate from that standpoint, but there are definitely some times like I had to have a talk with myself over the weekend about like, what are my priorities? Like, what am I focusing on? What, what are my two goals? And like, cause I started to have a bunch of things creep in that were not core to what I'm going to do. And, and you know, there's nobody else else to keep you. And that's just one example, but like, or just, you know, spent like an unnecessary amount of money on something that I sh don't need to be doing right now. There's nobody that's keeping me in check. Right. And so like all the things that I hated as an employee, like the CEO seeing like the budget and being like, we spent 10 grand on that. Nobody's doing that to me now. And so like, you know, there's definitely big trade-offs of that. And so I had to have a talk with myself this weekend <laughs> and just do a little bit of like reprioritization, but I've never been a big goal setter. Like my goals, like the goals that I set are like three or four bullets bullet points in a year. Like I have two specifically for like this year, for example. And like, I don't have... Is that something you shared somewhere? I'm curious. Like, would you mind sharing those two bullet points or... <laughs> I mean, they're very silly, but one of them is a revenue goal right. for DGMG. And then one of them is a golf goal. I got really into golf and I have a personal goal of wanting to qualify for the uh, Vermont State Am, the State Amateur Tournament. And so, but like, that's because this is where I'm at in my life and this is what I'm working on. And so, it's, you know, those goals are much different. Three years ago, my goals were like BCMO, buy a house, do this or that. I just use these two guiding principles as like, this is the thing that threw me off track this weekend. I got off on a bunch of different ideas and I'm like, hold on, are these things bringing you closer to either one of those two goals? And, and by the way, the weighting on those goals is like probably 80, 20 yeah. on the first one, but it's really fun to have like a non-work goal and, it, right. and it's like mentally satisfying to be, be like working towards that. And so I just use those two bullets as like, right now they're just like on a post-it note under my computer and they just give me a reminder of like, as I'm about to go on some random, like say yes to some random project or something that I really shouldn't be doing. And then I go look at those and I'm like, ah, does it map back to those? Or like, and so, so I'm like, okay, my goal is to grow DGMG to X. Well, biggest pillar that I have right now is I'm going through a rebrand and I need to get that done. And that's my blocker right now. And so this week, what I'm working on is making progress on that. And those just two things act like kind of North stars to just make sure that I'm working on the right stuff as defined by me. So, you know, yeah. it could be very wrong, but that's how I operate at least. I mean, that's, uh, those, those two sound like pretty impressive, silly. I mean, depending on how you look at them, but also meaningful. That's what at the end of the day, right? Yeah, it's not, no, it's not silly. I just, I just didn't want people to be like, this, this guy putting golf as his goal, you know, but like I work for myself now. I set my own <laughs> rules. I set my own well, that's, hours. That's the freedom, right? That's what you get. Yeah. yeah. So I've also, I really set two on purpose. I've like in years past, I've been like, I've tried to set too many goals that are just mm. not real goals, like revenue goal, this goal, family goal, audience goal, yeah, audience yeah. goal, yeah. you know, wake up at this time every day goal and like 45 I, books a year goal, 45 yeah, books a year. Just... Like it's exactly KP, exactly, <laughs> exactly. I'd be like, read at least X. Now I think what's more important for me is like habit and building habits. And so yeah. like, I don't have to put goals for that because like I am with my kids every morning. I'm putting them to bed every night. We're having dinner at the table every day together. Every morning I do read, I read for 10 minutes a day. Right. I have workouts scheduled on my calendar. And so like I've, I've like, I think systems for me at least are so much more important than goals. Like, yeah, that's just on my calendar. Me Those too. Things are gonna happen. I mean, yeah. Well, I mean, it's somehow, I think it's probably a character flaw. Like I've always had, every time I had a daunting, like ambitious, like 100K goal or whatever, like followers or something, I sucked at it. I gave up like within a month, within a week. But every time I said, I just want to have a great conversation with one person a week or four DMs uh, or something like that. And it felt such an easy, achievable thing. I outperformed. 100% I think it's my my own bias. I mean, it, I could be a weird person. But every time I had a massive goal like that, when I announced in public, people say accountability in public, I actually never worked for me. In fact, so New Year's is like the worst time for me. I'm like, I'm just like zoning out those three days because I, I don't want to be part of any of this, you know, parade of, yeah. you know, like, like everyone like ballooning up their goals just to, you know, show that they have ambitious goals. But I think deep down, like to your point, like, the reason why I asked for podcasting is I think I see like you just love it. I, mean, I know it's probably, it's still, I I feel the same way in terms of like, got the freaking tax on it, but I don't see you quitting. Once I get into it. Yeah. Now once I'm, once I'm warmed up. Yeah. So I, I wish you all the best on that journey and all the creator journey and the DGMG journey and uh, on the golf journey too. <laughs> Uh, hopefully I'll see you on national news. Is that, is that the goal? I'm just kidding. But I just wanted to say thanks for being no. on. And that's and, actually uh, a perfect example. Last thought on that is uh, the marketer in me keeps struggling. Like, man, I should maybe like, I should document this golf thing. Cause I think that'd be great content. And that would help me get into the golf niche. And then I'm like, no, have a hobby 
Yes. For the Turn sake of off, having but... your hobby, have your own thing. Cause next thing you know, then I got to be like tweeting about it and I can't even be like present. And so it's like a take a, a discipline to just be like, how about just have a hobby for your own like yeah. inner satisfaction? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, don't we all, it's just a, such a struggle, but it's a good place to be, you know, cause you got the other yeah. thing going. So yeah. <laughs>